0: justice for all human rights are women's rights change the world <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I think one of the most interesting stories in the world today is the advent of the new Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. This is sometimes described as a Chinese-led rival to the World Bank, and its creation was strongly objected to by the United States. It's not actually operational yet. It's still being formed. But the fact of its existence, I think, combines so many interesting global trends. The rise of China, the relevance of the global institutions that the USA helped create at the end of World War II, the effect of extreme political polarization in American politics on global affairs, and, of course, the need for massive investments in infrastructure in the developing world. Here with me to discuss all of these issues, plus many more, is Scott Morris of the Center for Global Development, and we cover a great, Deal of interesting terrain in this interview. So you're gonna hear a lot of acronyms in this interview, which is sadly unavoidable when discussing international financial institutions, otherwise known as IFIs. AIIB is of course the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and MDB refers to multilateral development banks like the World Bank or the ADB, the Asian Development Bank. So I think that's all the acronyms we use and without further ado, here is Scott Morris of the CGD, the Center for Global Development. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Lanyon from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
0: yeah it's interesting. I think you know this this whole episode it's it's become sort of a Rorschach test for the international community. You get a lot of different interpretations of what's going on here. One is that it's it's a direct challenge to uh the world bank as as the sort of global anchor. you know I think that's that probably overstates um exactly what's going on you know number one um it is a regional institution it's it's not a global institution um i think it's ambition um in terms of uh financing and and, and size measured that way it do, does not rival the world bank um and i also you know i think that it is unnecessarily um confrontational frankly i i don't think in the characterization from the Chinese themselves in the reaction from world bank and Asian development bank officials, you actually hear very welcoming, um, and cooperative kinds of comments. And, you know, I think that's, you know, those are well considered. I think they do, um, given the reality of this thing, um, there is a very real desire to make sure it, it operates, um, as a partner, as a peer, um, to the existing MDB. So I, I don't, um, you know, I don't think it's the you know there's there's any designs to have the AIB sort of directly challenging in its operations um, uh, either the World Bank or even more close to home the Asian Development Bank.
1: Um, okay. So what do we know uh, about the proposed structure of the bank? Like how will it how will it operate? I mean, what kind of nuts and bolts do we know at this point?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I have some sympathy for the Chinese in, in trying to deal with these kinds of questions because, it, you know, it it's not easy to create a new institution. I think it, it really is going to take some time. I think they, as everyone, were surprised by the rush of countries to join. Um, you know, they no doubt um, were engaged in, in a lot of diplomatic outreach to try to attract countries, and then suddenly they got 57 of them. So that's at the stage for now a lot of multilateral discussion that the Chinese will lead around every aspect of how this new institution will operate and I think because of that and the challenges that lie ahead it's there aren't a lot of clear answers yet on on the details. Um, you know some of the big issues um you know what will governance actually look like, how much voting power will the Chinese have relative to the other shareholding countries, um, you know, and on that issue, um, you know, the advertised ownership with the Chinese owning 50% of the bank, um, I actually think you know that that would be problematic if that translated into actual voting power in the institution. It really would run counter to. Um, Sort of a true multilateral character to the institution, and and just to, and, to
1: back up for for one second, um, the the World Bank is is sort of um, structured that way, just in the sense that the more you pay into the World Bank, the more voting power you have, right?
0: Yeah, that's that's right. This is a key concept um, that you know, unlike the UN system, um, the multilateral development banks have weighted shareholding, and as you said. Um, your shareholding is a function of, of of how much effectively equity you've purchased in the institution. Now, it's not, you know, in that way. It's not demand driven. It's not as if any country can simply choose to purchase more shares and therefore be uh, have more voting power. It's all uh, determined by a heavily negotiated formula. Um, and they, you know, in recent years have been trying very hard to update the formula so that. In fact, countries like China have a greater say in the World Bank, um, but it's a, it's a very difficult exercise. Um, nobody wants to lose, and it is a fixed pie, so some countries have to give up voting power so that the, um, the emerging market countries in particular can gain
1: and so you know one theory of for the advent of the Asia Infrastructure Development Bank is that China sort of fed up with the inability of the World Bank to reform itself, set off and to create its own rival institution
0: yeah so that's that's certainly one of the um prevailing theories um and so yes, on the one hand i I'll, I'll I think it's credible in the sense that um China in an almost singular way um Feels, you know, rightly feels frustrated that it's it's voting its voice and vote in the existing system, including the IMF, actually, um, is underweighted. That, you know, it is a much more dominant player in the global economy, and therefore that ought to translate into a more dominant position in the World Bank and the IMF. So, fair enough there. On the other hand, um, I tend to think that in practice. China doesn't have real concerns about its ability, um, to have influence in these institutions. Um, and for this reason, it is in fact, because of the most recent round of voting reform, which happened in 2010, China's now the third largest shareholder in the world bank. Um, and then you add on top of that, the fact that it's a major borrower from the institution. Those are both actually key sources of influence over the bank, um, the bank takes seriously the views of its major borrowers. It has to. So, in that way, China actually has unique um, standing in the institution. so i I've tended not to agree so strongly with that notion that it, this is really about shareholding reform in in the bank in particular. I think um, where they have been frustrated, is the overall ambition of the world bank and its other key shareholders namely the united states and here i think the chinese along with countries like india brazil other emerging markets for a number of years now have been saying we want much bigger mdbs we have major projects that we would like to fund through these institutions Um, we think they should be bigger and we think that all of us should be putting more capital Uh, into the World Bank, into the Asian Development Bank, so that they can do more of these projects. Um, They've been frustrated in that ambition um, by, in particular, the United States, which has not been willing to entertain um, that question of more capital. And, you know, as a result, uh, you know, this is very simple. The Chinese say, okay, well, if we can't put more capital in the World Bank, we're going to create a new MDB and put our capital there. And any other countries welcome to join us.
1: And on on that line, what investments do we expect this new bank to make?
0: Well, you know, it's in the name. I think this will be strictly an infrastructure bank. So, so, so what
1: does that mean? Like building bridges and and roads it's, and yeah, ports?
0: It's you know, I think the core of it is is physical infrastructure, bridges and roads. But it you know extends. You think about the energy sector, water. Um, it's actually pretty wide-ranging in in terms of actual activities. Um, You know, energy needs in the developing world are huge. Um, Investment in power plants, hydro, uh, you name it. I think that will all be um, part of the remit. Um, You know, one interesting thing here is that if you listen to the Chinese actors, they are careful to distinguish their new institution as an infrastructure bank, not a development bank. And, you know, it's... I have to say I have a hard time making sense of that. I, I think in practice, you know, in fact for the World Bank infrastructure is the largest single thing that they do for the Asian Development Bank, um, even more so, they they're, you know, more dominantly an infrastructure institution. So in practice, I think it, it very much is a peer to to these um to the MDBs. Um is sort of
1: like the the subtext of, you know, this new bank, like, you know, part of this kind of rivalry between China and the USA in, you know, Asia in particular, I mean, you look at a country like, you know, Myanmar, where there, you know, there've been competition over influence between the USA and, and, and China. Um, and, you know, this to an extent is, is a way for China to exert its influence in its region in a much more sort of robust way without sort of having to deal with the Americans.
0: Absolutely, and I think you know the u s itself has helped that subtext um become prominent in its own reaction to this institution mm-hmm. um You know it's hard to make sense of just how strongly stated the negative <laughs> views were from the u s um and the the amount of sort of diplomatic outreach to dissuade countries or at least ask critical questions of countries as they consider joining, you know, why go to all that effort? And it really comes back to this question of strategic influence. Um, You know, the reality is for the United States, um, they've had a tremendous asset um, at their disposal for over 70 years, you know, with the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, and, you know, the U.S. position as the largest shareholder of both. Um, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it is it is an overstatement to say the U.S. runs these institutions. It does not, but it yields significant influence over them. And as a result, it's, it tends to view them as an instrument of its own influence in, in the developing world. Um, so, you know, China looks at that model and, and finds it attractive and um, and is now seeking to replicate it uh, with what appears to be great success in, in attracting so many countries uh, so quickly to join.
1: I thought Larry Summers had a pretty interesting theory on, w- like, you know, one reason why the U.S. was so opposed uh, to this bank. Because you know Congress, in its current formulation, would never even consider joining this bank or, or, or paying into it. So the Obama administration decided, well, you know, there's no way that you know the Republicans in Congress are going to let us join this thing. So we might as well do what we can to delegitimize it from the from the outside.
0: Yeah, I think certainly the I, I'm I. It seems clear enough that the thinking all along from the administration. Is that you know, there's just no chance that we are going to be an actor within this institution. Um, it's not a question we're going to even ask of Congress. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably always been there. I think we're, the, the puzzle that remains is that why choose a strategy when you are already standing on the sidelines? Why do you think you'll be successful in sort of shouting at other countries not to do something that they see as in their best interest. Um, and, and particularly with the alternative being, okay, we're, we know we're not going to be able to join the AIIB, um, but you know, we are the leading shareholder of these existing banks, and, and what are we doing there to make sure that countries um, are still on board, still value them? Um, how do we make these institutions as attractive as possible? And I think that's really That remains the live question going forward because, um, you know, we have the immediate, which is the launch of an institution, a bunch of countries join. But over time, the question's going to be, you know, does AIB grow um, relative to the existing MDBs? And even, you know, does AIB become become a model for the Chinese to replicate in other regions? And I think on both fronts, the U.S. has to be, a little troubled by those prospects and then you know really have to be thinking actively about how do we keep that dynamic in check. So
1: from like a global kind of governance and neoliberal institution building perspective, I don't know, this seems to me to, to raise like really two interesting questions that the, or, or or prospects. The first is that, you know, that this connection between dysfunctional domestic politics and waning American global influence um, the other is the decision by the Chinese to, you know, to, you know, which is like a rising power to, in a way, um, create a bank that essentially limits its power. You know, it's still kind of being discussed that precise parameters uh, of whatever you know the, the voting structure of this new development bank is going to be. But it's, you know, they are opting to constrain themselves in some way by creating a multilateral system, uh, which is, you know, not dissimilar to what, you know, the USA did in the, the Bretton Woods uh, agreements many years ago.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's it's clearly reflecting the Chinese learning a lesson about the smart use of power. And, um, you know for them, on the heels of what has been a backlash about a lot of their bilateral activities, particularly in Africa, um, you know they recognize they had a reputational problem. it wasn't serving you know their, you know the, the, the flow of investments from China, particularly to Africa, isn't serving strategic interest if it's only creating headaches for the Chinese and, and create, you know generating criticism. And I think that's where, you know, it, it appears that they stepped back and thought about the multilateral channel um, and the way in which it can be used effectively. And, yeah, I, I think they took their cues um, from the U.S. position over many decades. Um, and it is um, yeah, it's a little counterintuitive, I suppose, because you are giving up some degree of control, you know, arguably a lot of control um, in, in various aspects of the way the institution functions. But, um, ultimately, I think you know the benefit still comes back as it has to the u s um, when these institutions operate effectively, um, they become highly valued partners throughout the developing world. And for the Chinese, you know this is a frontline view. They actually you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that they value the multilateral model when they've been such a large borrower of the multilaterals themselves they They really do see the value. Of the institutional relationship. so it's not such a large step to then say, "Well, what if we were actually the leading shareholder in one of these things?" You know, mm-hmm. think of I, the additional benefit.
1: Yeah, I, I think the term of art for what the Chinese are doing here is strategic restraint. Um, sure. I, I guess going forward, um, like, what are you looking out for? Like, what should we, as you know, observers of international development and, and international affairs, you know, look out for as this new you know development bank? starts to
0: take shape. Sure. Well, I think there are a lot of details to look for. Um, You know, some, you know, of varying degrees of either importance or or interest, depending on who you are. Uh, But they do have, as I said earlier, a lot of work to do in sorting through exactly what the rules of the road will be for the institution. You know, when it comes to building a bridge, um, you know, how will they bid out contracts? How will they ensure environmental due diligence? All of those things have to be figured out. The high-level issues around governance need to be figured out. Um, So all of that is worth watching. I think, if anything, you know, there's again, the the U.S. has expressed very publicly this concern that because it's led by the Chinese, this will be um, sort of a low-standards institution pushing the money out the door quickly. I actually think the greater likelihood is that the, the AIB ends up looking a lot like the World Bank and the ADB in practice for, for a very practical reason, is that um, they, need to, they need to look somewhere for their rules, um, and the easiest thing to do is take them off the shelf in the form of existing World Bank rules when it comes to environmental standards, social standards, and by all accounts, that's exactly what they've been doing, very active consultations, I mean, because it's 19. easier,
1: right? I mean, because these are things that right. mo- that they've already agreed to, um, so that's they don't right. have to like I mean, you know renegotiate you know from square one, right? They don't have to reinvent right. the wheel.
0: Yeah, and in that sense, I you know I actually think there's they're probably we're losing something from that. I think one of the peculiarities of the MDB system is is how much of a cookie cutter. Um, outcome we we seem to have the ADB looks a lot like the World Bank, which looks a lot like the Inter-American Development Bank, and you know I think um, you know that's been at the cost of more experimentation, frankly, across the range of issues. So that's you know that's one set of issues to look out for, and then the other that's is a, that's a that's a
1: blissfully counterintuitive take, by the way. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, I, it certainly isn't the dominant narrative, um, but you know we'll see how it goes. I, I think. A little bit of it is listening to the rhetoric of the Chinese actors here. They, um, you know, they are looking to reassure international actors, particularly as they are trying to recruit countries to join, that they intended to have credible standards. So you've heard that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I do think, you know, to serve the reputational interests, the again, the easiest thing to do is just to sign on to existing practices. Um and then, you know, I think it, it will be important to watch what happens in the, this, the old institutions, what happens at the World Bank and the ADB, um, with, given this episode of, of uh, the AIB, and, and how, does the, how does the U.S. act um, on big issues and small ones. Uh,
1: well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This was very, very helpful to me
0: good My I pleasure. suspect
1: I suspect everyone else as well because this thing is just you know it, it's caught a lot of attention but there's not you know there's not a lot of like deep and, and thoughtful analysis of it out there so again thanks so much for sharing that with me and with everyone
0: okay thanks for reaching out
1: All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And if you made it to the end of the episode, it means you are a true and dedicated listener of the Global Dispatches podcast. So I would recommend, urge, plead with you to write a review of the podcast on iTunes. It really helps other people with similar interests discover the podcast. So again, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.